0: um kids connection at this time. <clears throat> All right. Well we've got uh, <clears throat> we've got our fourth Advent sermon today. Um, and it's coming from Haggai. How many of you guys have read Haggai in your reading last week? <laughs> A couple? No? <laughs> Um, it's not one of those often read ones, but it's, it's packed full. It's two chapters. Um, we're actually going to read the whole thing today. Um, no, we're not reading six chapters in Ephesians, but. <laughs> Come that long expected Jesus is the hymn that we've been following. I want to read this hymn to you, and I want to ask you just to think about the progression in this hymn, um, Come that long expected Jesus, written by Charles Wesley. Come, the long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver. Born a king, a child, and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. The lyrics of this song focus on God choosing to give a Messiah to the world in the form of Jesus. It also focuses on the Old Testament Israelites longing for a Messiah to come and to take the burden of sins from them that they had held, um, that the, for him to take it upon himself. The second to last line um, of that verse may uh, may have been come or influenced by um, uh, a philosopher of that day, Blaise Pascal, said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator. The second stanza was um, from a prayer that Wesley wrote when he came across Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7. And the, the future hope of that book for England and for its poor and for its social plights in his day, and the first stanza then came to him, and he published them in 1744. I want to read Haggai 2:7, and then uh, we'll take a quick look at the book and and get into it. Haggai 2:7. If you're there, um, you read along. And I will shake all nations. So that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So I want to read through this short book, and I'll make some comments, uh, put in some context here and there, just a little bit, and, and let's pray and ask God to teach us from His Word today and point us to the Word made flesh. Jesus, I, I pray that you would teach us through your Spirit, teach us truth. You said uh, to your disciples, I will send you my spirit and he will guide you into all truth. I pray that right now as we hear your word, that you teach us by your spirit, teach us truth, connect dots for us, let us see the story of God, let us see it unfold. I pray God that you would bring glory to your name and all of this in your name we pray. Amen. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, that first verse, in the second year of Darius the king, such and such a month, such and such a day, every time you see that, that's going to be one of the speeches of Haggai, one of his oracles from the Lord. And uh, there's five of them. And each of those are specifically dated and can be traced both by um, unbelievers in the uh, academic world as well as by um, biblical scholars, down to actual days. Most likely, the first one was August 29th of that year, uh, and that year would have been 520 B.C. Um, Haggai, in this first verse, Haggai um, is the author but we don't know anything about him. We don't know any family history. We don't know his parents. Um, All we know is that Haggai came on the scene, and he spoke the word of the Lord, and then five months later, he was gone. And all you see is little bits and pieces of um, uh, kind of notes as to his history during that five-month period in other books. Ezra, Zechariah. Um, some of these are going to mention Haggai, and they're going to mention it based on these five months of him being a prophet to speak for the Lord. So then 1-1, one 2-1, 2-10, and 2-20, all five of his speeches. They come from August 29th to December 18th, um, and that's the only period we have for Haggai. So if you were to look at this uh, timeline of the nation of Israel, you would know that um, the deportation of Babylon happened in 587, 586, right in there. And so um, what happens is they are all deported. They go to Babylon. Uh, Cyrus, God's king, Isaiah says, I'm going to raise up a man named Cyrus. He's going to be a king. And he said this before Cyrus was born. So God prophesied that Cyrus would come and would send people back from a captivity to rebuild his temple. Cyrus sent that, pe- that group of people back in 538. Uh, that temple began, the foundations of it, and the altar. But then, if you want to read about that in Ezra, you can. But then in 520, Haggai comes, and they still haven't built the temple. And Haggai comes on the scene asking them, by the word of the Lord, to build the temple. We'll see that in a second. So Haggai, along with Zechariah and Malachi, are known as post-exilic prophets. So these are the prophets that are after the exile, out of Israel, out of the land That God had given the people, because of sin, they were exiled out, they're punished, and now they're going back in. So Isaiah would have been pre-exilic, and these three guys, um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are going to be post-exilic. And so all of that, just to kind of give you where we're at. Haggai, um, his name means festal. May have been that it was during a feast day or on a feast day that he was born, so he got the name Haggai. But that's really all we know about him. He was called to take the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua the high priest. Um, His first oracle, we'll see here, a call to rebuild the temple of the Lord. It's a very practical purpose in this book, but we're going to see there's more to it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, we're reading in verse 2 now. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the Lord... Came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of Hosts: Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but you're not warm. He and he who earns wages does it to put uh, into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you will with, um, have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for drought on the land, and on the hills, and on the earth, and the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, and on the ground that brings forth. And what the ground brings forth? On man and beast, on, and on all their labors. You'll notice Lord of hosts is repeated there three times. This is actually three of the 14 times it's listed in two chapters of the Bible. Um, It's a name that doesn't show up until after Judges, but it's a name that sets God apart as the sovereign one, the king over all nations. We heard about Cyrus, and we heard about Darius, two kings of two separate nations who have kind of amalgamated along history lines, and this God is the God who raises up these nations to deport his people and raises up these leaders to send them back because he is the sovereign king. He is the Lord of hosts. He is over it all, and he rules. This is his story, and he's working things to his glory. And so, in all of this, um, when you hear the Lord of hosts and when you see the Lord of hosts, I want you to be thinking about the God who reigns over all, who is seated on his throne. While this book highlights the sovereign king, it also calls for human effort. It's a book where you see the divine work up here alongside the human effort, the call, and there's a tension that balances the perspectives of mankind and God. It's a tension that um, we try to reconcile uh, when we think about our responsibility and we think about God's sovereignty, but it's a tension that God lets sit because he's God. And he says, I will get glory, and so you just need to do as I ask. Ultimately, attention remains where the Lord of hosts says that he will do, and he also calls the people to respond in faith and in hope to that declaration. He tells them to fix their priorities. He tells them that their provision is is tied to their response to God. He tells them to rebuild the temple. So then how should we, 2,600 plus years later, come to... This text, come to this so far, and how should we think in light of God's plan and the story of the Bible? I'll get ahead of myself if I get there, but um, I want to connect some of those dots at the end. God, uh, when he made his nation and called them out of Egypt, said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be in your midst. And God, at the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy, said, you obey me and I will bless you. And if you choose to disobey me, if you choose sin, I will curse you. The curses of this book will be on you. And God is calling the people again in Haggai to hear him, to consider their ways, and to hear that he is a loving, long-suffering, and gracious God. Now, in the first statement that Haggai makes here, there is a distinct call to rebuild the house of the Lord. Yet God makes a, a point to say that this is not the whole point. Um, just to rebuild my house. What do I mean by that? I want you to look back at verse 8 and see what he's implying here. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. God wants his house built, not so that their crops will come in great. God wants his house built so he gets glory. Because he already knows what's going to happen in the other part. God wants his name glorified. And so that's what the Lord of hosts is all about. And so in this in this um, short book, you're going to see that. God does this for his glory. Now in the first... Um, statement that he makes. He's saying it's about God's glory. Now, we're going to move on to verse 12, and I want us to see where he goes from there. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Every time you hear repetition in a short, short book like this, every time you hear, and he said the word of the Lord, and he spoke the message of the Lord, that's really important. Um, When they would have written this, it would not have been um, an erasable ink. Uh, It would not have been something they could redo. So it's very important when the Spirit of God inspires repetitions. So take that for whatever you can get out of it. I can't explain all of it. But here, this is the word of the Lord. And uh, Haggai is is holding this very highly. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people, the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak and the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th, month, uh, 24th day of the month in the 6th month in the year, second year of Darius the king, I want us to hear what just took place. God spoke. He used his prophet. Then the people feared the Lord. Next, God's message rings out again. I am with you, declares the Lord. God then stirred their spirits, their very souls of Zerubbabel, of Joshua, and all the people, and he, and he caused them to be involved in this work. This is the response of faith that comes from hearing God's Word. Romans 10 says that um, the the change and transformation comes by hearing of the Word of God preached and proclaimed. And how will people hear unless someone goes? The Word is connected to the hearing, and the hearing is connected to what God's doing in the heart, and that's all God's plan and design. And you see it all the way back in Haggai, God says something, and the people respond because of who he is, the Lord of hosts, and then they work. Abraham, um, on the top of the mountain uh, in Genesis 22, Abraham has, has received God's promised seed. Isaac goes up to the top of the mountain, and God has asked him to sacrifice his son on an altar to him. Um, sacrifice his promised son. Abraham's on top of the mountain, and he obeys God. He hears God's voice. He goes and obeys God, and he's about ready to sacrifice his son. And God comes to him. The messenger, the angel says, stop. I know that you fear me. Abraham heard God. He feared him for who he was. He gave him his proper place. He is sovereign king. He's Lord of hosts. And so Abraham obeyed what he saw and believed in God, a God who is faithful and a God who is good, and that led to his action. He feared God and he obeyed. Abraham really becomes a paradigm of faith for salvation. Um, Paul uses that in Romans for a key argument built that salvation is by faith. God's righteousness is granted to Abraham in that story. And it's because he feared God. He worshipped God for who he was. So after hearing God, the people believed his ultimate authority as sovereign Lord, and they obeyed, and they rebuilt. Chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. It's not like he had to repeat that, but it was specific and the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? What, what is that? That's Solomon's temple. D- chapters upon chapters are devoted to the beauty and the description of Solomon's temple. It was covered with gold inside and out. It was a temple that um, the world's leaders came in to see. It was an amazing thing. And God is really saying through his prophet, who, who here saw that former glory? Do you see this? Verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the Lord, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more... In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The sin of this, and excuse me, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, Let's see what Haggai is saying here. Who remembers the former temple? Anybody that, that would have come back from the deportation would have looked on these ruins and would have looked on uh, no walls and a simple altar and, and just a, a little bit of a foundation and they would, have, they would have wept. In the book of Ezra, you see weeping. God says, Who remembers this? How does this compare? Pretty bad. But wait, Zerubbabel, Joshua, you people, be strong. Work for I am the one who declares this. I am the one who's the Lord of hosts. And he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. God said, I will make you my people, and I will be in you, and I'll be with you. And he's reminding them that he is a covenant-keeping God. He's reminding them that He is the faithful God that Abraham feared and worshiped. He is reminding Him that He does not change. He is reminding Him that He is the sovereign one, the Lord of hosts over all. When I read those verses, I get chills when I think about what God is doing. God is going to do something that gives peace, He's bringing peace real peace. God is going to do something that is going to far outshine the glory of the former temple. Did they, did they have peace after this in their history? Not what, not what they had when Jesus came. Not what we have when he's coming again. Jesus is going to be the one to bring peace. God is doing something that far outshines the glory of an old temple Or the first temple, Solomon's temple, even covered with gold, it's gonna be outshined by this little structure right here. What's he saying? He's pointing them forward to something bigger than they can imagine. And God is doing something that produces a cosmic shaking in the whole world. Verse 10 of chapter 2, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat um, in the fold of his garment and touches uh, the, uh, the bread, the old bread or the stew or the wine or the oil, are any of these things, do they become holy? And the priest answered, no. And then Haggai says, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, do they become unclean? The priest answers and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider From this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When you came to a heap of 20 measures, were there but 10? When you came to the the wine vat to draw 50 measures, were there but 20? I struck you. And all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. God is saying, the curses that you deserve guess what? I'm going to bless you. Instead of being a filthy people deserving every curse, you're back in the land. You're actually going to be building this temple, and I will bless you. I will be with you. I can only imagine what they were thinking. So what does the law say about the holy things, the set-apart things, devoted things? Do they make other things clean? No. What does the law say about unclean things? Do they make other things unclean? Yes. And so, in verse 2, for, uh, chapter two, fourteen, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. And they, the nation of Israel declares for us in story form exactly who we are. We are unclean. We can do nothing. We are touched with sin. We are deeply cursed. We are unclean. Everything we touch is going to be unclean. Everything we touch is going to be cursed. Every single thing. Except God says, I will bless you. And what is he doing? Two considerations for them. Consider your plight and your condition. I struck you. I struck all the products of your toil. Consider the temple also although it's not built right now, and although there's no seed in the barn and no, no um, fruits uh, that are coming from the harvest, from this day on I will bless you. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, and moreover, the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for, the, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. On the same day that he had made this previous oracle in verse 7, Haggai restates it and clarifies it just a little bit. God said, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm going to have a cosmic shaking that's going to overthrow kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations, and no forces will be able to stand against me. Haggai gets to come uh, to the son of a cursed line and say, the curse is lifted. You see Zerubbabel in Jesus' lineage in Matthew chapter 1. And he gets to say to him, I have chosen you. The signet ring would have been on the king's person. He would have stamped every document, every decree with that signet ring. That would have carried his authority. And God says to Zerubbabel, you are like my signet ring guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to use you to stamp my authority on what's going on here in your context in 520 BC. This building of this temple, I'm stamping with you my authority and my blessing on this work so that I will shake out the heavens in just a little while and I will overthrow kingdoms and rulers and I will do this because I am the Lord of hosts. Haggai gets to say that to that king. Zerubbabel, why? Why has God chosen you? Well, was it Zerubbabel, the man Zerubbabel that God had chosen? Or was it his, one of his sons? It was Jesus. It wasn't Zerubbabel. How could Haggai say that? Because in the Old Testament, in the culture, in the the lineage was important. Fathers stood for households. Blessings and cursings could be pronounced on a house and and experienced generations later. Remember, God is outside of time. He created that for us. We can't exist without it. And he exists without it. Remember that Abraham had nothing to do with what God was doing, but Jesus came through the seed of Abraham. God said to him in in, uh, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, you get up and you go to a place I'll show you, to a people and a land, and, and I'll show you where to go, and you trust me, and I will bless you. And through you and through your seed, I will bless the world, the nations. And so Abraham had nothing to do with it. Abraham was an unfaithful and unrighteous man. Except for the fact that God said, I will bless you. And he changed him into a man who could say, I fear God and I will obey him above anything else. I'll throw away this promised seed because I have the God of the promise. And on the top of that mountain, Abraham was counted righteous because he feared God and obeyed him. Abraham had nothing to do with it, but God had everything to do with it. So God is saying now through Haggai... Go back. Abraham had nothing to do with it, but Jesus came through the seed of Abraham. God told Eve that her seed would be the snake crusher. She wondered if it would be Cain, Abel, or even Seth. But God is saying to Haggai now, Zerubbabel, I will fulfill my covenant to my servant David through you. I will put you on the throne, and I'll put the snake crusher on the throne because of you. I choose you, and I will bless you. God says to the people, do this work. I'm going to put a physical representation of myself in this place, and I'm going to be with you. And then, guess what? God's going to send his son Jesus to a manger to save his people from their sins. And that Jesus is going to come and say, you can destroy this temple, but I will raise it up in three days. And then he says to a people following him, he says, I am the cornerstone and you are a building, you are a body. He says, and Peter, you're living stones and God is making a temple for his presence. He said, I am in you, in your midst. He's given us the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit to be with us and in us. And now God is saying it's not done. There's more yet to come. God will shake this earth one more time. When Jesus comes again, everything will be set to right. Jesus will come just like he promised back in in Genesis to Eve. So then how do we um, see Israel responding to God and his word? First, what did God say? He called them as a remnant of covenant people, to reset their priorities around his call as king, around the fact that they are worthless, and he is the only one who is holy, and he's the only one that can bless them. Hear me, he said, do this work, and they did it. God spoke to the people. The people feared God. They obeyed, and they responded. So then how do we respond to God and his word? How do we respond to Haggai chapter 1 and 2? What is God calling us today as people of faith, as people of God through the promised seed of Jesus Christ? I believe that God is calling us today to the very same work of making the glory of God shine bright through the presence of God in His people. God is asking us to consider our ways. God, as a covenant keeping God, in Exodus 29 said, I will dwell among my people, Israel, and be their God. In the new covenant, in Christ's blood, the wall between Israel and the nations was torn down. The curtain was torn in two. And no longer was God separated from his people, but he's with them and in them. And no longer was it just the Jews, but it was to the Greeks and to the Samaritans and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And God is shaking the heavens, and he is bringing the nations in. He's bringing their glory in. He's bringing their wealth into his kingdom. And he is going to call us to rejoice with him around his throne with every tribe, tongue, people, and nation for his glory because he is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the sovereign king, has sent his son, Jesus, We celebrate Advent because Jesus has come to save us from our sins, to save us from our brokenness, our sinfulness that is a part of everything we are and that touches everything around us and makes it unclean, and He's come to stamp a new image in its place. The second Adam came to take everything that we've messed up and to fix it, to cleanse our brokenness, to transform us and to make us new, and only because of Jesus Just like Abraham, just like Eve, just like the others, we can't offer anything. Save. Fearing God, this is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1 says, beginning of knowledge. So then, how are we to respond in all of this? God's calling us out of this world and its ways. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, we're to be a different kind of people, not conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing of our minds, the changing of our lives because of the work of Jesus Christ. We see him and we see us and we confess and we repent and we turn to Jesus and he makes us new through his grace. He transforms us. God is calling us away from this perishing world system that says the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is the way to live. That will perish and it will be destroyed. And Jesus is the one that says, I am making all things new and I'm going to fix this. God is calling us to holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through seven one say this. What agreement has the temple of God, that's us, with idols. The first commandment in Exodus 20, put God first. Have no other gods before me. Everything else, if we're not putting God first, is an idol. And we're not to be in agreement with idols if we're the temple of the Holy One. For you are my temple, the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be uh, sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God." First Peter reminds us of that. You'll remember from earlier this year. That it is because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we can live and walk in a holy manner, in a manner that's set aside, in a manner that's cleansed and changed, not because we're good, because Jesus was. Not because we have hope, because Jesus is the hope. I believe that God's calling us to fix our priorities. Our spiritual tradition and our history, it doesn't drive us, it's, it's a person that drives us. It's not our personal kingdoms or our wealth or our jobs or our fashions. We need to reset our priorities. Don't set them on the pleasures of this fleeting world, but set them on Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, God is calling you and I to repent from our former ways and to turn to seek God first and His righteousness to set our hand once again to the work of building his temple, both personally and corporately, set our, key, set our hearts on the glory of Jesus Christ and him alone until he comes again. Friends, God is calling you and I, no matter what tradition we're from, no matter what location we've come from, He's calling us to turn to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and to cast our souls upon the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the good news that we were lost and hopeless in our sins, but God came down. We are sinners, and we're still in our sin when God chose us and saved us. Yet while we were sinners, God saved us. Through faith and repentance, we are going to one day bear the beauty of the second Adam fully. We will see him, and we will know as we are known. So what is God promising to us to do? To Israel, God said, I'll restore the line of David. I will keep my covenant with you. This remnant nation will look forward to a coming king. God promised to rebuild his temple. He did that. And he destroyed it and built up another one so much greater. And one that we can see and that we will see in all its beauty. In the new heavens and new earth, when Jesus Uh, It said in Revelation 21, you read of the new temple coming down, uh, the new Jerusalem, and there's no temple in it, but Jesus is in it, in the midst, and it's beautiful, and it's gold, and it's every kind of jewel, and there's pearly gates all around it, and it's not 12 tribes, it's 12 apostles, and what it points us to is that God is doing this work, and He says, I will finish this shaking, and I will make it good, and I will fill this temple with my glory. To us, what did Jesus come to do and be? Jesus, the baby in the manger, came to save his people from their sins. Jesus, the king of heaven, came to be made low. Jesus, the king of glory, came to die on the cross of Calvary to give you and I perfect righteousness in exchange for our wickedness, our sin, our brokenness, and our guilt. The, one, the stuff we got from Adam our daily rebellion, our curse. This is the good news of the gospel and this is the good news of the kingdom. Jesus came to take our sins away. Jesus came to make peace and he said, I will make peace. He came to shake out the earth one final time and when he comes again, he's going to rule with a rod of iron and it will be good. I'm going to read a poem and then one last thing. This is the, there is work still yet to do. There is work still yet to do. Build my temple. Build my church. Call your brothers to this work. There is work still yet to do. There is work still yet to do. Free your hand of hopeless task. Turn to me, the God of grace. Cast your soul on me at last. There is work still yet to do. There is work still yet to do. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and now be free. To my grace I bid you flee. There is work still yet to do. My kingdom will be full, full of nations, tribes, and tongues bowing down before my throne. My righteous son in glory reign over every rebel rule, conquering with his precious blood. My people yet have work to do until he comes a second time, setting all to rights and cursing Satan to his doom. There is yet still work to do. God is calling us to be his people, set apart, holy, because he has chosen us. He's calling us to be his people, set apart, holy, and righteous out of no effort on our own, but the perfect Son of Jesus Christ who came. To bear our burden on the cross, who came as a baby king, as a serpent crusher, as a servant king who would die and would empty himself so that we might be full, who would give us his righteousness in exchange for our filthiness and our rags. This is the king we serve. This is the king that will be faithful to his promises. Friends, it's sad for me to say this, but I must inform you today that I will be stepping down as Associate Pastor of Discipleship at Enid M. B. Church, effective January 1st. This may be just as hard for you to hear as it is for me to say. My departure is, is not for, uh, because of personal sin or a newer and shinier job. It's actually not for a job. I have been in pastoral ministry formally for six years. I've studied uh, to this end for 17 years of my life, and during the span of that time, um, you come to convictions of conscience that shape you, um, stances that you you can't get away from. And uh, upon one of those uh, stances, because of a conscience stance that I have, and really the harm of going against my conscience, I am going to step down from serving here. My desire for this church is for unity and unity among the leadership is critical for both the health of the body and the unity of his church. And so although you may not understand that, um, I'm asking you to trust me and trust the elders. I've been loved and known your support here. I love you all very much and have come to enjoy all of you. I want to thank you all for the opportunity to get to know you and to serve alongside of you this past year. I have learned much during my time here. I can attribute much of that to my interactions and friendships with many of you. I have been invited into your lives, and I deeply appreciate all of your care for my family and I. It has been, uh, in many ways, expanding um, of my love for community, of my love for mutual care, and growing concern for the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ. I'll miss all of you. Although I have not always done what was expected by everyone, I feel that I have not been ill-regarded. I would have you know that I am not leaving feeling any ill-regard for any of you. Anyone. I'm looking forward to what the Lord has for us, uh, for our family, as we're going to return to the East Coast. We're going to pursue life and ministry there, uh, Lord willing, over time. Pray for our family as we make another transition across country and know that we will keep all of you, our extended family, in our prayers.
1: Mark uh, let the elders know of this uh, decision on Monday, and I'm just going to read to you a a letter uh, from the elders. So this comes from the elders. Uh, First of all, Mark, to you. Mark, the elders want you to know that we appreciate you very much. It's not with joy that we accept this news, but rather with faith. Uh, faith in God's leading and in his ways. In this past year, you have had to adjust to some surprises, but in all the adjustments to living in Oklahoma, uh, coming to a new church, working through staff changes, and all of this, you have led diligently and served faithfully. You have demonstrated a Christ-like attitude and a spirit-filled life for all to see. You have pastored the flock under your care well, and for this, you are to be highly commended. We will miss you Anne, and the boys very much. There are many, many here that have been impacted in deep ways as you have spurred us on towards a deeper knowledge of Christ and what it looks like to live out the gospel in our daily lives. Thank you for holding fast to the word of truth. May God bless you in your next season of ministry to the praise of his glorious name. Congregation, if you have any questions about Mark's letter, please come to one of the elders who will be either in the back of the sanctuary or by the welcome center. The elders will also have copies of Mark's letter if you would like one. And we ask that you just continue to keep the Brumbaugh family uh, in your prayers during this transition time.
2: I'd like to, to ask you to please join me in prayer uh, as we conclude our time together. Heavenly Father, we have heard the call from your word this morning to align our priorities under the sovereignty of, of your rule you as the king over all. I pray that we would see this lived out. see this lived out in your provision and protection for the brumbas and your working in us as a church. May we place our hope. Not in full barns, but in a coming king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Saturday is Christmas Eve. We are having a candlelight service here at 5 o'clock. And I want to invite you to return and, and join us for a time of worship. As we celebrate that Christ has come and is coming again, you are dismissed.